Hello and welcome to episode 21 of Magic and the Other Guy. And you join Kevin and me at my home on the banks of Lake Wiley in Charlotte, North Carolina. And Kevin, our gentle listener, may be aware of a different tone and resonance to our recording today. And there's a very good reason for that. Can you explain what it is? Well, I think their keen ear has probably picked up on that we are inside today due to weather being not only cold outside, but it's also quite rainy and damp. Yes, and although your two genial hosts are prepared to wrap up warm and um, forego the dry weather for the rain to make our wonderful recordings down here on the lake, um, our electronics are particularly sensitive to the humidity. And by our extensive electronics, I'm really referring to my laptop here, which uh, last time we tried it, it was covered in moisture and it didn't really want to work for a couple of days after. So we brought it inside because we think it's the safest thing to do. How some soever. Here we are, Kevin, episode 21. We're still up and running. What are we talking about today? Well, quite often we've discussed entertainment and different things like that. So I thought we'd do a little uh, sub-discussion today on... Uh, so maybe some of our favorite actors and actresses mm. that uh, we've enjoyed throughout the years. Oh, yes. Okay. So, so films, actors and actresses. Yes. All right. Well, you start us off then. What, what, what is one of your favorite films or actors and actresses that you've enjoyed over the years? Well, one that I go back way, way back with is Kurt Russell. I've always liked Kurt Russell's Have work. Yeah. yeah. And that really, I say it goes back. Definitely to when he, he was a teenager, I guess, and he was doing those Disney movies. Yeah. He did like, uh, what, the computer that wore tennis shoes and the barefoot executive and those type of things. <laughs> and there were all these live action, fun Disney movies. I think they must have been filmed in the late 60s, yes. somewhere in there. Yeah. And they were generally shown on like uh, the Wild World, or what, what would they show that, that show that would be on Sunday nights, the Wonderful World of Disney, I think it was. You uh, probably got yeah, it. Yeah. It, it was, you know, again, you were more, much more limited in children's programming back right. in the day. And it would be like a movie that they'd show on that. Um, and inevitably it'd be, they were at some college campus and the, the dean or whatever was, you know, the nemesis and they were yeah. trying to get something pulled over. And another funny thing, it almost seemed like every one of those movies culminated in a chase scene where they were driving in one of those Myers-Manx type dune buggies, you know, and going under bridges. They may have a ladder coming out of the top of it yeah. or something. But it well, also got me really into, you know, thinking I'll have a dune buggy as my first car one day. It was obviously a formula that worked very well for Disney in this example. And as we've chatted about before, once you hit on something that works, thinking of all the spin-off from Star Wars success, you know, you got to follow it and follow it. And I know the films you're talking about now are pre-Star Wars, but that idea of once you hit a formula that works, I always remember... Um, um, a football coach, whether it was John Madden, he said once, I know we're getting off topic already, but we do that a lot, and he said something like, never, you don't want to change a play that works until the def defense stops it from working. Yeah. You know, it's the same thing, isn't it? Like, you don't want to change a formula for a movie until the audience decides they've had enough of it, then come up with something else. Well, it's kind of like the old, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. It's exactly that. It's exactly that. Yeah, I can't tell you how many of those they did. I have to kind of go back on his filmography and see how many yes. of those movies. And they were always, maybe it was even the same college. You know, maybe they were like just a different story and they were still at the same named college or something like that when they were yeah, you doing mean, their you hygiene. Mean, they were all set in the same college. It could have been. Because a lot of times the same actors maybe yeah. were playing the, you know, the the dean or the head of whatever yes. at the college or the science professor or something like that. I do maybe. remember, I mean, 
my life was entirely different uh, my young life early years over in England but I, I do remember seeing many of those Disney movies and the one that always sticks in my mind was That Darn Cat Yep. why that particular movie sticks in my mind but I do remember going to the Curzon Cinema in Loughborough uh, which I often used to we've chatted about this before I think and uh, I, I'd take my just me me myself and I'd go on the bus from, uh, from home and catch the Midland Red bus into Loughborough Saturday afternoon and always try to go to the cinema regardless of what was showing providing it was a U movie and they'd let me in I'd go in and see it and I do remember going in and uh, I don't think there's hardly anybody in there if there was two or three other people in there but I do remember watching that darn cat yes and having a darling death ray chocolate mint ice cream which was my little treat of the week. oh very good yeah sounds yeah. great yeah well, those Disney movies they I mean they were very very popular weren't they They're highly successful well, but in terms of actors that I've really enjoyed I never know what we're going to be talking about before we sit down, so it's always some memories that just flash through my mind. But the one, one actor that always springs to my mind is Sean Connery. Oh, yeah. I think a great actor. But what I've always admired most of all about Sean Connery's acting is he has never given any concession whatsoever to attempting to play anybody but himself. So there's no accents or anything. You remember him in uh, The Hunt for Red October? Oh, yeah. He was the, he was the only uh, Russian submarine captain yeah. I've ever captain known. Captain Ramius, wasn't it? Captain Ramius, with a, with a, with a broad Scottish brogue accent. <laughs> <laughs> just, just wonderful. This yeah. is me. This is how I'm going to play it. Like yeah. it or not, this is me. You've cast me, and here I am. That's so right. Put me in a big fuzzy hat and put me on top of a... Uh, <laughs> Have a sub and we'll go. I've turned up to the set, so let's film it. But um, yeah, he's you know he's definitely one that falls into the legends category. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Many, many, many great films and and roles throughout the years. Yes, I suppose perhaps most well known for James Bond, his role, his role as James Bond in those movies. But uh, again, no concession to anything. He was just Sean Connery playing Sean Connery. Yeah, yeah. We just lost him this year. So yeah. Yeah, yeah, he was always definitely, a, definitely a good one. Of course, you know, it started before my time, you know, obviously, and, and you know, kind of getting back to Kurt Russell. I remember even before the Disney things, I I had seen him in the reruns of. He's in one episode of Gilligan's Island. He's like a Tarzan boy, like oh, yeah. a like a boy that grew up in the jungle. Yeah, yeah. And he's in that, and I think that, and I've seen this like on filmography reels or something like that. He did like a commercial in the early, maybe early sixties, where he's a little kid, and it was like a army gun commercial yeah and of course look what he's gone on to ever since and you know now he's you know you see him in the tarantino movies and i loved him in death proof i thought he did a really good job in that and i've just always liked him throughout the years is he always in a hit no but he's consistently good you know and he's done the comedies yeah. he did uh, you know overboard and captain ron and he strikes me i mean you know he doesn't return my calls any longer but he always strikes me as a sort of chap that's prepared to have a go at anything and give himself to the role and yeah. play anything yeah. Yeah, just wants to be around the industry. Yeah. And I, I think that's, it comes across, you know, as is that he'd be, you know, very personable in, in, in person on, on the, off the set and stuff too. Yes. So, yeah. yeah. And I've always liked, you know, his, his relationship with Goldie over the, over the years has been really interesting to watch, you know. Yeah. So. Yeah, wonderful. I and, and talking about actresses, um, I have to say Marilyn Monroe, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm picking on, you know, real classic star starlets movie stars uh, but Marilyn Monroe most most especially for me in Some Like It Hot I mean she just absolutely nailed that role of a sugar 
and uh, in, in, in that movie. Um, and I've read many reports, as we all have, about how difficult she was to work with and that she'd arrive late on set and some scenes that should only have taken two minutes would sometimes take five hours to record because she'd fluff her lines and whatever. But everyone, I think, agrees that uh, there was something just remarkable about the performance that she would give when she finally got it together. Uh, just brilliant. I mean, just, just, just so funny on camera. Yeah, I, I can I can imagine how complicated it must be of being a you know a somewhat prolific director because you're getting so many different personalities in each of your projects. Yeah, you know, and how they're going to handle the situation, how you're going to handle them, you know, it sure is like almost a full time job. Ne never mind trying to get the film done, you know. I think uh, yeah, uh, handling actors and actresses, uh, yes, that must be that, that must be an incredibly thankless task until you see the work that's produced at the end of it yeah you and know. everybody brings a different set of skills to the table and how they you know apply those skills yeah yeah so. yeah but yeah that's kind of that kind of brings me up to to one of the things i always really respect actors and this is a prime example of one is christopher walken he doesn't take i love the ones that don't take themselves too seriously mm. he is more than happy to do the silliest thing on saturday night live or play in a comedy or whatever, but he's such a very accomplished, acclaimed actor that does really amazing things. And it's kind of funny, If I was thinking back too, uh, when I was thinking about talking about this, it's hard to remember one where he was the main character. Right. He's always supporting, he's high up, he's a, he's a high level actor, but other than like, I thought about The Dead Zone, he did the, the, the Dead Zone, what, in the early 80s? Yes. But I can't, beyond that, it's hard to remember where a, a movie where he was the lead. But of course, he's you know part of the you know later later legend crop in, yeah. in Hollywood that's done so many yeah. great things. And Walken has a very distinctive voice. I mean, as soon as you hear that, you could never mistake him for anybody oh, yeah. else on yep. set, right? You know, you know instantly who it is. Yeah, yeah. So he's he's a prime example of that. And then uh, another one I, I I like, and I like the one I, I tend to enjoy seeing ones that you know aren't like your Tom Hanks, your George Clooney's, these you know Tom Cruise that are consistently doing great work throughout the years and they may not be the lead they may be but um for example eric stoltz always liked eric stoltz okay. um i loved uh, you know some kind of wonderful mask those are two movies i could watch oh, anytime right, right, right. oh yeah. Yeah, anytime they're on i can yeah. watch them um and he did a lot you know he did Tarrant, he did he was in pulp fiction you know yes. there's of course you know a big 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 role there um, small role in a big movie. You're a big Tarantino but, fan, I think. Are you? you know, I don't, I don't live and die by Tarantino's movies, but you know, and I don't think I've, I'm not sure if I've seen. I haven't seen the Hateful Eight yet. Um, yeah, so I'm I trying have, to think. I, I, I might not have seen all of them. There's a few that I probably have not. I have, I have seen the Hateful Eight, and uh, I, it was that screening when that first came out. Now I'm thinking it was nearly 10 years ago. I mean, time moves so fast. Right? It could have been, yeah. Uh, but I do remember it was on um, Panoramic Vision. And uh, there was only a few cinemas around the country that were showing it. It's a real wide vision, 70 mil wide vision, I guess it would be. But there was a few projectors that, that were around that could show that movie. Uh, there was one cinema in Charlotte that was showing it. And I thought, oh, you know, kind of cool. I'll go and see that, see what that's like. But I'll tell you what, I couldn't get into the movie. It was there was such a demand oh, really? to get into that, and I had to wait. I think it was three days before I could buy a ticket to well, get in. I don't remember the fervor around it. Yeah, but it's good that it was, it was, I guess. Well, I don't think it was so much the movie itself. 
um, as just the format that it was playing on in and there was a lot of uh, interest around that. But the one or two things that I do remember about that movie, The Hateful Eight, that always stick in my mind was the wonderful scene in the snow right at the very beginning. You haven't seen it, so we shouldn't really talk about it, but I do have the DVD copy of the movie. And I may have said to you this before, I'm not going to watch it until there's really heavy snowfall in Charlotte and I can sit here at The perfect, proper <laughs> that's, setting that's, to watch. That's right. See the snow outside and then see the opening to The Hateful Eight. But uh, yes, I mean, Tarantino has made some very memorable movies, but uh, I, I like, I, I do like Kill Bill 1 and 2. We've, we've, I do too. We've that's talked about in, those in my, like my top five of Tarantino's. Yes. I like that, that yeah. pair. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like Lucy Liu's character of Oran Ishii, the uh, Japanese-American assassin, yep. you know, and um, the crazy 88 crew that she's walking around with. I mean, I think that's just just a wonderful piece of Pulp Fiction comic drama that, that Tarantino, he just, it's something that he does so well. And the other thing I really like about Tarantino, we, we should be talking about actors and actresses, but... Tarantino as a director, I love the dialogue. He really does give himself that dialogue. And when you hear a long exchange between actors in, in the Tarantino's movies, um, you really do have to listen to the, the, every word that's being spoken. I remember that long scene towards the end of Kill Bill 2 um, between uh, Carradine and, um, and um, Uma Thurman in the hotel in Mexico and it's, you know, they're, they're talking about what truth means and how, how their life has played out and whether or not uh, uh, Uma Thurman's character, is she a really good character or did she really actually enjoy being an assassin? And then, um, yeah, it's, a wonderful, it's a wonderful exchange, but I like the dialogue that Tarantino puts together. Yeah, I still remember uh, at the at the time when this came out, my my roommate was one one that I had had in college, and, and just you know always was roommated with him, and he came home and had just seen Reservoir Dogs, and he was like, "This is yeah. a game changer." It's he said, changer. "We've got to go back and see this again." <laughs> so he took me to that one. That, of course, yeah, was a big introduction, but he was like, "This is unbelievable." This yeah. film, and it, it it ended up being one of my top favorites in his list. But uh, you know, of course, it had Harvey Keitel, who's a, you, if we go back to the actors, he's yeah. done a fantastic, you know, career. But again, I'll, I couldn't think of a movie he's led other than what was it? Uh, what was that? There was one, the Good Cop or the Good Lieutenant or the Bad Lieutenant or something like that. Yeah. There was one that I think he had the lead in. But generally, he's supporting and does an amazing job. And he doesn't sometimes doesn't have that big a role in you know, like in Pulp Fiction. He had a very yeah. small, a relatively small role in it, but it was very memorable. And, and I and I get the impression, but hey, you know. What do I know? But I just get the impression that if Tarantino calls, you're not going to say no to a role, whatever he offers you. Yeah. You want to be in one of his movies, right? It seems to that seems to be everybody wants to be in a Tarantino movie. Yeah. 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 And, the, and the cast is, you know, now, you know, he just came on. And I, this is one I haven't seen that that most recent one, I guess, with Once Upon a Time, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah. So where he got, you know, people that he hadn't, I don't think he ever worked with before. Yeah. So. Yeah. Remarkable stuff. Anthony Hopkins. We're thinking about actors. I've always liked him. He seems very dedicated to the art form, but the role of Hannibal Lecter, I think what he did for that character was just absolutely stunning. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was just, uh, th- we're thinking about it the other day because they've just they've just started that new uh, series on TV, Clarice. Yes. Uh, so it made you think, you know, about it. And yeah. I remember seeing the documentary on how Signs of the Lambs was really just a pet project. Yeah. You know, and here it became, you know, one of the greatest films of all time. And how they say that 
his he has one of the greatest villain entrances of all time. But yet it really wasn't him. It was the camera panning to his cell, and he's just standing there looking at you. Yeah. So no entrance to it at all, not even a movement. Yeah. And it's one of the most foreboding, you know, introductions now, to a villain there ever has been. Again, you know, as our gentle listener is aware, I'm never, a, I'm never aware of what we're going to talk about until we sit down here and click the microphone on and start talking. But by com- complete coincidence, I was watching something about uh, Hannibal Lecter and um, Hopkins playing that character the other day. And uh, he said, I never, never blinked once during the shots when I was playing Lecter. And I thought, well, I've never actually studied it that close, but I'm going to go back. Now, and now we have to go back and watch for a blink. I'm going to go back and see whether or not that was the case. Um, yes, so that the idea of just eye contact is, is such a critical part of the role and the quiet, controlled voice. Very little emotion being shown by Hopkins playing that character just yeah. makes it all the more powerful. And he had been quite a quite a working actor many years before that happened. I'm, I'm, I'd have to go back on his filmography to see when he really started, but just what ten years prior ten years prior to that, he was the Doctor in the Elephant Man. Yeah, yeah, and I'm right. sure many things prior to that, and yeah. probably a lot of stage work and stuff. I would guess, but yeah, uh, yeah. it's funny how sometimes these these roles. I mean, I, I doubt very much that when Hopkins was offered that role, he thought he would it would turn to this iconic performance that is known throughout, will now be known forever, really, as probably yeah. the, the role of playing Hannibal Lecter. However, if there are any movers in the future, or if there are any more books written by, whether it's by Thomas Harris or anybody else, you know, if that, if that character has advanced into the future, um, even if those stories go back in time, I don't think anybody that's going to play that character will ever be able to live up to what Hopkins did with it. It's just become his role. Yeah. Yeah, and too, it's, it's, that's kind of funny. I mean, if, you, if you take, you know, adapted books and stuff like that, they're, when you read them, you know, they're whatever you're in your mind, but once it's put on film, and especially if it's something iconic, then it's forever that image. Daniel Radcliffe, Daniel Radcliffe will always be Harry Potter. Yeah, <laughs> you know, that kind right, of thing, yeah. you know, in your, in your, your vision of what he is. Yeah. Yeah. What other, what other actors or actresses stand out in your mind? As well, you know, go to, go to actresses. Uh, I always, uh, I always like Sissy Spacek a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Cause she's in two movies that I will watch anytime. And one of, one of them is especially that way is I will watch coal miners daughter anytime it comes on. It is, I, it's hard to call it a cult classic with me, but okay. you know, it's or a guilty pleasure because it really was a great movie. I think it was up for a few Oscars, but I can watch that anytime. And she does such a fantastic job as Loretta Lynn. And then I loved her in Carrie too. Yeah, yeah. So, and she's done a lot of other great things, many things throughout the years. But those are the two that you know really cemented my uh, fandom of her work. Yes, mm-hmm. uh, I've just been thinking now when we're having this conversation. You just mentioned Radcliffe, uh, but. Alan Rickman's portrayal of Snape in the uh, Harry Potter movies, I thought, was another wonderful role. I can't imagine anybody being able to better that performance, that incredible aloofness, for want of a better description, of Rickman playing that role, sort of looking down on the kids with such disdain. You know, yeah. that I'm having to be here. Why am I having to teach these urchins this wonderful, magical power of potion making that I've got? But I just, I, I think he absolutely nailed that role. Uh, wonderful, another wonderful actor that we've now lost, of course. Yeah, yeah. I was, uh, I just introduced, uh, actually my wife hadn't seen it, and then my, da- my daughter, of course, had never seen it, but we watched Galaxy Quest. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, within the past few weeks. Yeah. Uh, of course, you know, he did a really good job on that, but it was kind of that, you know, 
bringing that that snooty British kind of yeah. thing to that role, which was not really had comedic moments, but uh, and then of course you know going all the way back to when we first were inter- at least I was introduced to him was Hans Gruber and Die Hard, of course. Yeah, which uh, we're j- going to jump tracks slightly, but that goes back to being the greatest movie experience I ever had was Die Hard. Really? Well, I, my friends worked at the theater. And I don't know if we've, we've maybe touched on this before, but many times, you know, we would all, we see all the movies for free because we we're all friends and they work there and we could yeah. come and go. But they would show uh, the movie the night before. The, the projectionist had to review it to make sure there's no sure. tear yeah. in the, anything yeah. bad in the film. Yeah. So they would make sure it's ready for the next day. Yeah. And a lot of times they'd have us come with them. Um, and so he's like, you know, come hang out and it'd be like a row of eight of us or something like that. And I still remember I'd come in from working at the restaurant and, and they called the house and said, hey, we're going to, you know, do a midnight, we're going to do the midnight movie of Die Hard tonight. Come on out. And I was like, oh, I'm so tired. And they're like, no, 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 come on. So I went on out and uh, we watched it. And, it. and there was a big crowd too. It was a big bunch of people for some reason that night. And I didn't expect much because you're like, this is, you know, the guy from Blind Date, you know, whatever, <laughs> you know. And I just remember being blown. You were sucked into that story, yeah. and for that two hours or whatever, you were going down the hallways with McLean. I mean, I mean, that was unbelievable. And we just came out just stunned at how good it was. I mean, the movie's had a much more dramatic effect on you than it has on me. I mean, I can I, I watch it, and I'm, I'm happy to sit there and sit through it. But I'm I'm aware that you and and many 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 others are are absolutely fascinated by the movie. Where do you stand on Die Hard being a Christmas movie? I know this <laughs> oh is, boy, yeah. we're going to have a device in Well, <laughs> I mean, clearly it's not really, but yes, it is. So wh- what is it about that movie that makes it a Christmas movie? Ah, uh, the fact that it's at a Christmas. Yeah. Um, and, I, and this has only come up in the past, seem definitely five to ten mm. years. Or ten, I'd say about ten years is what I've Yeah, I mean, and it's one of those, I think you just pick it the way you want. But it's, it's not consistently shown all over cable at Christmas either. Yeah. And I recall, I mean, it's only been, it hadn't been that many years that Home Alone has been shown a lot at Christmas, which it kind of makes sense being a Christmas movie because, you know, it's a holiday, it's snowy, you know, they've gone away for Christmas, you know, and he has to decorate the tree by himself, that kind of thing. Yeah. So it didn't seem like, it it seemed like it had to take a number of years to take a foothold into being a Christmas movie. So I think Die Hard may be the same thing. Give it another 10 years and let it evolve to where it's starting to be one. Um, I mean, the ones that made sense, obviously, were immediately the Jim Carrey Grinch was going to be, you know, an immediate Christmas hit watched every year yeah. all over cable. Yeah. Same with Elf, you know, those type of movies. Yeah. And then, of course, there's the classics that we have to see every year that have been around for decades upon decades. Yes. And I think, personally, I think uh, the, the first Potter movie, uh, The Philosopher's Stone is the book and The Sorcerer's Stone is the... Is the uh, as the movie and the American edition of the book, uh, but I think that wonderful Christmas party scene in yeah. in that first Potter movie will make that a Christmas movie as well. It yeah, seems I mean, it to just be has shown. a good feel. Yeah, it's a good with feel. With the snowy the and right, yeah. you know they're yeah. in the mountain, you know the, the majestic mountains around the castle yeah, and all yeah, that. It's, it's it fits. You know? It fits. Yes, it's uh, yes, it's, it, it is um, a curious, elusive something that makes a movie a Christmas movie or not a Christmas movie and that's certainly the case for me with well Dyer. isn't it isn't wasn't the movie The Ref isn't that a Christmas right at Christmas and you don't see that all over the place either yeah. you know but 
Yeah, you say give me 10 years and see what happens. Who knows? I, just, I mean, I thought I think it was critically acclaimed. I don't think I've ever really seen it. Mm. Um, I think I have it on DVD, but never watched it. So maybe I have some uh, <laughs> something I have to do by next Christmas and, and check that one out. Yeah. But, uh, you know, there's just funny movies that are set at Christmas that just don't take hold. Sure. You know? And they yeah. may even be a Christmas made to be very made Christmassy, be right, yeah. but just, they didn't you know, pick up with the audience and nobody really wants to see them over and over again. Yes, that is another elusive um, element of movie making and, and books and everything else and theatre is just because you make it for the intention of being a Christmas movie or whatever it would be doesn't necessarily mean it's going to hit with the, the audience and be remembered yeah I don't I don't think a, uh, It's a Wonderful Life I don't think was put out as a Christmas movie really yeah, I don't know. I, I'd have to look back and see I mean I know it did not do well when it yeah. came out but it might have hit theaters in June or July or something I yeah. couldn't say for sure it may yeah. have been you know more toward that time but you know the Christmas kind of comes in toward the end it's a long story of going with George Bailey through life until you get to the kind of the Christmassy sure. part at the end. Yeah, yeah. So I'm not sure that it was yeah. designed to be that. I mean, obviously, the 51 Dickens screw, or what, a Christmas Carol. Yeah. You know, any of those are obviously based on it, and it's a, you know, probably was put out at Christmas time, you'd think. So, yeah, I'd have to think so. And there's many versions of those, and they keep coming. Yeah. So, which I, you know, I can see them doing that. Yeah. So I think, I mean, probably veering somewhat off the movies, but I think. A Christmas Carol by Dickens is a, is a wonderful story. I mean, you could just see its success instantly. I think it was an instant success. It was an instant classic as soon as Dickens got it printed. I would hope so, yeah. The first edition was sold out, I think, pretty much within the, the day of its release. We need more copies, we need more copies. And, uh, great story, great great story to that. But I don't, I don't know an awful lot about Dickens. I mean, I've read something of his life and I'm aware of some of it, you know, but I, I think... When Dickens was working on A Christmas Carol, he knew instantly as he was writing it, it got it. You know, he'd locked himself away in the garret and it was writing and he'd get in these characters together and he could tell instantly. And they was trying to get finance together to get the book published. And uh, uh, yeah, as soon as it hit the shops, it was, it was sold out. So it was a great, but as we see with a, with a movie and TV adaptations of it, it's a, it's a it's a wonderful story and still still is. Yeah. Talking of which, bringing me to Bill Murray. I know Bill Murray. Um, oh, Scrooge. Played Scrooge. Which I love. I yeah. saw I saw that in the theater. This is back when my friends worked at the yes. theater. So we go. I saw it at least twice in the theater, <laughs> maybe three times. I can't remember. Yes. Well, you know, Scrooge to the movie with Bill Murray um, is probably not going to be a great classic. Remembered as a great classic, but I do enjoy him playing that role. But I do. I do enjoy watching Bill Murray at work. The way that he just plays these characters that are just so grumpy about life unfolding around them. And he pretty much plays himself in every character. He doesn't really shift an awful lot, does he? Yeah, exactly. But like I say, he's had a very... And we enjoy seeing him. So, yeah. yeah in fact, uh, we just had Groundhog Day on the other day. Just happened to be on cable and it was, it was on. Gosh, I, 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 love I haven't Groundhog. sat and watched it in a while. So I watched part of it and moved on. But, uh, yeah, I can always watch Bill and stuff. Yeah, Groundhog Day to me, wonderful, wonderful film, and most especially the start. I think once again, when he when he's playing, you know, the weatherman and he's so grumpy with what's happening around him, and he has to go and be a part of this wonderful celebration. <laughs> Does not want to be involved in it at all. Uh, strikes me that he's just playing himself in that role. There, just it's exactly the same. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where do you stand uh, with stripes? 
the movie that seemed to be a movie of two halves. Like the first half of the movie was very different to the second half of the movie. I, I, that's funny you mentioned that. I remember vividly when I finally saw because when it came out, I was too young to see it. You know, I definitely wasn't going to get to see it in the theater because it was R, wasn't it? I can't remember. But anyway, and, and this is back, you know, they didn't show as much on cable and stuff like that. It's a very innocent film if it was all rated, I must say. Uh, the times change. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think I could have gotten in. But um, back then, you were lucky you'd get a free HBO weekend every once in a while. Like, you know, my parents, there was no way they was going to get HBO. No way. But they, the cable company would have a free weekend occasionally. And, if, you know, we found out about our People our age found out about it. It's yeah. like unedited movies for like 48 hours, 72 hours. So I always had a TV in my room anyway, so I'd, I'd stay up later than they would. So fortunately, that was one of those that came on, and I got to watch it all the way through. And I, I still vividly remember once they finished all the boot camp stuff and they started off on the mission, I was like, true. I was like, I had no idea there was this whole thing with the RV and yes. the going to, did they go to Germany or what was it? It was like, yeah, Italy well, it was or Germany, Germany or Austria, somewhere, yeah. you know, up in the mountains, somewhere, absolutely. So but, I'm exactly thinking what you are. It just, this whole half of it took off with a storyline that I had no idea even existed yes, until I mean, the end. I, I mean, I'd, I have no idea what happened to that movie, if that was always the original intention or something changed halfway through principal photography, or I don't know, but it, it seems it's almost like part one and part two. Yeah. As you say, part one is all happening at the boot camp and getting to the point where they're passing out for the passing out parade. And then this odd, curious other story unfolds yeah. after it, which seems to have almost no connection to what happened at the start of it. Yes, it's a very curious movie, but I do like, I do like the first half of Stripes. I'm not a fan of the second half of Stripes. Um, yeah, I'm kind of the same way. And another movie that's very much like that is uh, Kubrick's Full Metal Jacket. Yeah. You know, you go through the whole, yeah boot camp the train and once started. that's over it becomes a whole yeah. different story and I will admit that normally if I have time or it's coming on I'll watch that first part and then I'll just move on to something else yes <laughs> I rarely have watched I've maybe seen the last half of Full Metal Jacket once yes I'm with, I'm with you most especially with Stripes and I do remember uh, you know the, the to me the line of that film has got to be from Sergeant Holker when he, Francis is unloading and keep your hands off my stuff blah 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 Sergeant Hulk is a line that Francis. I mean, yeah. it's just become such an iconic line that we use now. Removed from the movie, you know, if someone's really annoying us, I occasionally use it on Twitter if someone's uh, writing something that's just annoying, you know, like Francis. Yeah, my my favorite one still is you know when they get when they get off the they arrive and get off the bus, Larroquettes, they're all you know done up to the nines with his ascot and everything, yeah. and John Candy looks at him and goes, "What's up, Eisenhower? I hope this is the mess hall." <laughs> that's my line. <laughs> And then immediately after we had the, hey, look, we're walking, you know, and I hope they go marching along. Yeah, it's terrific. And talking about um, movies in two halves, and this is an absolute classic movie I'm about to mention now, but the second half of Jaws. Oh, when when the once, they're on, when, once they're on the boat? When the orca sets sail, I think yeah. that was an entirely different movie. True, true. And uh, I can watch Jaws over and over, but I will... Uh, be doing something else during the first half of the movie, not giving it my full attention. But towards the uh, the start of the second half, as soon as they leave Amity and set off on the on the Orca, I'm glued to it all yeah. the way through. And the great thing about Jaws is, and, and I'm not sure what the number is here, but you know, you never see the shark for how long? In? Is it yeah. 40 something yeah, minutes yeah. into the film and stuff? Which I think is fantastic. It's a great. You're thing. more scared of what you don't know than what you do know. 
and that's what it was the unknown what is what is it you know or, or what what size is it and all yes that. and it's also it's something I think Alien did exactly the same thing true right it's like don't show it as if you can not show the alien don't show the alien for two reasons one is you're more afraid of what you don't see what you think might be there but you can't see it you can't understand it and also the special effects and the costumes are probably eh, not quite as good as we wanted so if we can not show it if we can not show the mechanical shock potentially breaking down yes. for the 15th time that day don't so show Bruce the is down again That's Proves it down again. Exactly the same. And I think Alien copied the same idea. It's yes, don't show it. Keep yeah, it, yeah. yeah. Keep and they were what, the separated mind. by about four years. So that late seventies was, yeah. They were they were doing some really innovative yeah. stuff with that yeah. kind of thinking and stuff. I also think uh, in a completely different way, uh, but the way in The Exorcist, the conversations between the priest and the demon that was. Um, possessing them to the, the young girl you know that those conversations may, may be more in the book that I, I remember reading years ago now is that you, it was written in a way that you're never quite sure the, 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 the priest is never quite sure if the demon is real or if it's just made up and uh, there's, there's just this, this sort of you're never sure what's happening and the idea of you're never sure what's happening I think is a great is a great thing a great tool in terms of writing and in terms of movie making. Hitchcock does it all the time. Don't show it and then make it twisted. Are you sure this is happening or is it this is really happening? Yeah. You know, so, yeah. 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 How are you on Hitchcock movies? You a Hitchcock fan? Uh, what have I seen? I've of course seen Psycho and Rear, Rear Window was his, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. yeah I think, uh, yeah. So I think it was I, it. I've seen Rear Window. That might be it. I feel very remiss in, yes. in not seeing more of them. The birds I, was one not, of not, I know of it, but I've never seen Tippi Hedren. Yes, um, and uh, that's another movie. How to make how to make your average crow <laughs> be, be to be a threat? You know, how do you do that? Well, the idea is really not to show them and then just to show them all at once and then show a flock of birds flying rather than just one. It's a, it's a difficult thing to pull off, but I mean, Hitchcock, Hitchcock was clearly aware of that when he started that movie. It made it work. Made yeah. it work. It was another great classic. Well, I saw some, something that was very similar to, to what we're talking about, and I think they, they interviewed some people or something like that, and it was like saying in the, the shower, describe the shower scene in Psycho, and they yeah. said, oh, you, you know, all the stabbing going into the, and like, and then like at the end they go no actually there was not one stab shown it's all in your head it was all in your head it was all you know what you perceived was that you could hear it yeah. and hear different things but they never showed one you know wound yeah. in the whole thing and look what it's become look you know? what it's become yes I do remember reading um, Hitchcock used chocolate sauce or yeah I think it's Hershey right? syrup yeah Hershey syrup because it looked better on camera yeah. and, and it's in black and, and white, black so, and white so, so yeah uh but that brings up another aspect of movie making is to be aware of shooting in black and white not just because of the technical limitations of the time but how can you best use that format of black and white and using the Hershey syrup for blood is a, is a classic example of doing that it just looks so realistic yeah in, and if you're filming in, in, in color in there had to be a whole other solution to it somewhere yeah and who knows what they would have had back back then you know now we've gotten the special effects guys have gotten so amazing yeah. these days talking about I mean we're, we're jumping backwards now but it doesn't matter at all but some like it hot went through exactly that same stage of um, the decision was made to shoot the movie in black and white 
because when Curtis and Lennon were put into drag with makeup on, they looked so awful and unbelievable in those characters that the decision was made, we're not going to do this in colour. Uh, Marilyn Monroe seemingly uh, had, had in, in her contract, uh, it was stated that all movies with Marilyn Monroe must be shot in colour from whatever that point was that the contract was inked. And they had to convince Marilyn that this was not going to work. And so they showed her rushes off of uh, Jack Lemmon and Tony Curtis with the makeup in when they're uh, playing their drag characters. Uh -huh. And she said, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> we need something that's to soften, that's soften that's this right. effect. It ain't going to work for us. Yeah, you know, I'll agree to shoot this movie in black and white. But thank goodness they did. Uh, I have a feeling there may be a colorized version of that movie available. But I've never seen it and don't really want to. Yeah, not that seeing movies you know, that have been colorized. I, I don't feel, that doesn't really affect in terms of, yeah, look, the original still exists. It's like colorizing photographs. My goodness, why would you do this? Well, the original still exists, so you're not, either enjoy it or it produces more detail that wasn't there before. I get all that. A lot of historical photographs uh, show a lot more detail if, it, if they're in color, but you, we're, not, we're not destroying the original black and white, so we haven't lost anything. You can look at it whichever way you like, but I do believe in, uh, in something like it, I think it was just, um, it looked, I've seen some of the colour stills from Some Like It Hot, and I've seen the movie in black and white, and I've been fortunate enough to see it on the big screen in black and white, and I really, I don't really want to see that any other way. Exactly. Yeah. Keep the purity. Yeah. Well, we better wrap this combat suit when, didn't it? I Gosh. tell you, once we get going, it may not stay on track, <laughs> but we'll get going. <laughs> well, gentle listener, I hope you like that, and uh, if that, uh, as encourage you in any way, as it will do us now, to go to Google and research some of the points we've just talked about and check on those. Remember, we can't guarantee we're always going to get our facts right when we just sit down and talk, but we want to go back and check the authenticity of some of those facts. Well, that's what it's all about. We better say goodbye, Kevin. All right, we'll see you next week. See you next week. Bye.